This episode is brought to you in partnership with Nestle Carnation. Carnation has been delivering sweet and creamy deliciousness to desserts nationwide for over 120 years. Whether you're making or baking, topping or mixing, their products make desserts easier than ever. Incredibly simple and quick to use. You can make so many amazing treats with Carnation, from cheesecakes to banoffee pie, fudge, caramel and toffee a staple ingredient in every Keen Cook's cupboard. Head to their website, www.carnation.co.uk, for lots more inspiration, and there's even a free downloadable recipe book waiting for you there too. Thank you very much to Nestle Carnation. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. Time is absolutely flying at the moment and I literally can't keep up. But there are so many exciting things happening behind the scenes, which I'm really excited to share with you in due course. And I honestly cannot believe that we now have well over 10,000 people signed up to the newsletter dinner tonight. This is just so brilliant and there are very exciting things coming on that front too. So watch this space and make sure you're signed up. Anyway, on to today's episode. Russell, I have to say, is one of the coolest people in the world of restaurants. And I'm not just saying this, but the Pulpo Cookbook is one of my all-time favorites. And the new Bruto Cookbook looks absolutely brilliant and I'm sure it's going to become a cult favorite too. I actually went to Bruto the other day, which is Russell's new restaurant. I took my husband for his birthday. It's a classic Italian trattoria, and it was amazing. Seriously delicious. Couldn't recommend more. They have these delicious fried dough dumplings as a starter, which they call cuddles. And you tear them in half and spread them with cheese and pieces of ham. And honestly, you have to order them. They were so good. I absolutely loved it. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do let us know what you thought by leaving a review. And without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Russell Norman. Known as The Restaurant Man, he is a writer, broadcaster, and award-winning founder of celebrated restaurants with first the Pulpo Restaurant Group and now Bruto. Hailed as London's coolest restaurateur and having been described as the man who saved restaurants after the financial crash, Russell has over 20 years' experience in London restaurants. He worked his way up from bartender to waiter, maitre d', general manager, and operations director at Caprice Holdings, before opening his first restaurant, Polpo. Never one to follow trends, in fact, he sets them. It was Russell that started our love affair with small plates, sharing platters, and a move away from the fussiness of fine dining. It was also Russell that started the strict no-reservation policy that spread like wildfire. Russell has said, a lot of people fantasize about opening their own restaurant, thinking it's going to be a bit like a dinner party, but with a till. But that's a fallacy. The reality is 18 hour days and they would be tired and miserable. And yet he says for him, the feeling of running a restaurant is as though someone's plugged me into the mains. Welcome, Russell. Thank you very much for the nice introduction. (laughs) It's such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. You have been a very highly requested guest. And at the end of this, we are going to send you off to a desert island. What does the thought of that make you feel? Oh, um, um, I I do like my own company because of what I do, because of what I've done. I taught drama and English for many years before getting into restaurants. So what I've always done has been about people. Mm. Restaurants are about people. They're, you know, of course they're about food, um, but mostly they're about your customers and your staff. And you know, it's a people-centered business. Um, teaching is a people-centered business. So, as much as I like my own company, I, I think I'd struggle a little after mm. a time. How did you find lockdown? It was very difficult for me. Um, 
Uh, I spent a lot of time writing, um, a lot of time walking my dogs. Um, felt very frustrated that I couldn't travel because travel has been a huge part of my life for a very long time. Um, so it, it was tough for me. Uh, but having said that, it was during lockdown that I formulated the ideas that eventually became Bruto. So yeah. I you know, have that to thank. Yeah. So, so much of your life's work with the cookbooks and with everything you did with Polpo is based around your love of Venice. Mm. You've described the first time you went in 1986 as a feeling of stupefying awe and wonder. And it was mind blowing. Mm. You describe it as being akin to a panic attack. Can mm. you tell us in your words what it is about Venice that made you fall in love with so it? That reference there, the panic attack, the stupefying um, wonder, is a phenomenon known as Stendhal syndrome. Mm. Um, and this was first described by Stendhal, who was a, a French philosopher who visited Venice and came out of a church and stood in the middle of a square and was unable to move and found his heart beating at twice the rate it should uh, and felt like falling over. And it was... In his words, it was the response to the uh, the amount and abundance of beauty that was around him uh, that caused this physical reaction. And wow. I, I had exactly that the first time I visited Venice. And so I, I was unprepared when, when I went to Venice for the first time. I, you know, it was the mid eighties, late eighties. It was the it was the days before the internet. Uh, so I'd done no research at all and arrived at Santa Lucia station from um, from Paris by train and hadn't even realised that Venice was a city built on water. <laughs> and so that was the first uh, sort of slap to the shops, I suppose. Um, and once I got my head around that, um, jumped on the number one Vaporetto, which then sails very slowly down the Grand Canal. And at each stop, I, I got more and more uh, amazed and more and more stupefied to go back to Stendhal um, about what was around me. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a real shock to the system, uh, but one that, it, it, one that stayed with me for, for such a long time after that first visit. I was there for three weeks in the middle of summer. Um, and I didn't see that much of the historical center of Venice because it was crowded and it was incredibly hot. I spent most of the time on an island called Lido, which um, borders the Adriatic Sea. So it was pretty much a beach holiday, okay. bizarrely. <laughs> and for those that know Venice, that, that sounds odd. Yeah, <laughs> it, it sounds very odd. But I, I turned left from my um, accommodation in uh, Giardini right at the end of the Grand Canal in St. Mark's Basin. Every day got the Vaporetto to Lido and sunbathed and had a sandwich and a you know, cup of coffee, bottle of water, and then came back in the evening and cooked and, and met friends and so on. So it was not a true Venetian experience. Mm. In Which those, is in interesting, those, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, in those first three weeks uh, back in the, in, the, in, the, in the mid to late 80s. And so I thought I've got to come back here and explore the city properly. Um, and I've done that pretty much twice, three, four, sometimes five times a year ever since. Wow. So, um, and that's you know that's what led to the birth of Polpo. Mm. Um, that word, uh, I'm not going to attempt mm. to say the word because I'm so terrible at languages, <laughs> but the word that you used to describe the awe and wonder, mm. is that only ever used to describe a feeling about places? Or can you have Stendhal's that about syndrome was specifically about um, Stendhal's uh, response to Florence. Okay, yeah. okay. So you can't have that about people? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's about the, you know, the environment and you know, wh where you are and sometimes how difficult it is to take everything in. Mm. Um, and I got that with Venice. I got it a little bit with Florence, but I, I think I was, you know, I had a bit of an armor yeah. <laughs> uh, by that point yeah. and, and didn't know exactly what to expect. You know, the first time I went to Florence, it was, yeah. it was stupefying and wonderful. But, um, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I wonder mm. if it had happened the other way around, mm. what your reaction would have been. Yeah. Mm. Let's pause there and talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I guess from the age of around about eight or nine to around about 12 or 13, I spent summers with my grandmother, Gwen, in her house in East London, um, in Forest Gate, with my brothers. And back at home in Hounslow in West London, I was never allowed to cook. Mm. In fact, I was never allowed to go into the kitchen. 
my stepfather was very strict about uh, keeping children out of the kitchen. Um, he had this bizarre opinion or, or, or fear, let's say, that children would contaminate anything that was in the fridge or contaminate surface, surfaces. Okay. And so we were, we were pretty much banned from the kitchen. So I, I wasn't able to, you know, to, to cook. Well, I wasn't able to go into the kitchen, let alone cook. So when I spent summers um, with my grandmother and my brothers and my um, grandfather in Forest Gate, we would sometimes be able to go into the kitchen and make something with Gwen, my grandmother. Um, and the first dish I remember making with her um, was chocolate cornflake cakes. Ooh, a classic. An absolute classic, yeah. yeah. So a box of cornflakes, some melted chocolate, some cocoa powder, a little bit of... Um, Tate and Lyle treacle, uh, mixed in a bowl, licking your hands, putting the um, cornflake cakes into little dishes or yeah. paper cups, mm. putting them into a fridge, and then about an hour and a half later, taking them out yeah. and just, just eating way too many. Um, <laughs> I like how you've described licking hands as an important step there, which we know it is. Absolutely. There's a great <laughs> skit, you must look it up, on YouTube of Eddie Izzard talking about something similar. And he says, you know, when you're with your mum and you're making cake and you lick the spoon and it's like the best thing in the world and then you put the cake mix into the oven and it's less good. Yeah. It's weird, isn't <laughs> it's it? Why does it taste you, so good? Why, why, why did you do that thing? <laughs> why, did you, why don't you just stick with the original, which yeah, came I know. It's a very good point. So similarly... Or does with, it just taste better because you know you're not meant to be because, doing oh, it? I don't know. You're always allowed, aren't you? Mm. Go and lick the spoon and think, oh, my God, it's so good. <laughs> the same, uh, not the same, but similar with, um, with chocolate cornflake cakes. Mm. But, yeah, it was always nice waiting. And then when they were cold and crunchy... Yeah. Taking out the fridge. You've said that you feel very strongly that <clears throat> home cooking is the very best kind of cooking. Mm. Do you think that's quite rare for a restaurateur to believe? No, I don't. I think it's rare for most professional chefs, but mm. I'm not a professional chef. I never have been. I've never put on, you know, the white jacket. Did you ever want to do that? I did, actually. When I was a waiter at Joe Allen in the 1990s, um, I thought quite hard about asking for a position in the kitchen but the only positions at the time were commie chef positions which would have meant a huge reduction in salary okay. and at the time I, I was a new father and you know had a a little mortgage <laughs> in northwest London and it wouldn't have made financial sense for me to do that but um, there are parts of me that you know that sometimes regret not retraining and not becoming a chef. Having said that, yeah, I'm a reasonably good cook and I write pretty good recipes, I yeah. think. <laughs> and, you know, I run pretty good restaurants and, you know, know my way around ingredients mm. and um, processes. Um, so, you know, I, th I think the, the path that I've taken is probably the right one, even though there are times that I, I sort of regret not being a chef, that's, a real chef. That's so interesting mm. to hear you talk about regret because I was wondering that mm. when I was reading about you, but I think almost in a way, maybe the fact that you did never train as a chef is kind mm. of your superpower. Okay, so to go back to your original question, my love of home cooking and my focus, particularly with Bruto at the moment, you know, the reason I called the restaurant Bruto is because there's an Italian expression which means ugly but good, mm -hmm. and it's used specifically to describe the sort of cooking that your grandmother does. So there are no chefy twists or twirls. There are no smears or dots. It's just good food, cooked simply, put onto a plate and then enjoyed in a family environment. Mm -hmm. And so many of my favourite uh, trattorias in, um, in Florence and in the wider region of Tuscany in rural areas as well as those um, those cities like Florence and Siena and Pisa and so on. <clears throat> that cooking is homely. You know, it, it replicates and references the sort of food that you would find in a family home. Um, and that, for me, was always going to be the focus and the, and the centre and the philosophy of Bruto. Mm. So, yes, ho home cooking is, is always going to be in, in my mind, the epitome, I suppose, rather than the sort of dishes you get in really fancy restaurants that are trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. 
or put their twist on classic recipes. Yeah. I'm always saying to my chefs, no twists. Mm. And so trying to improve it or trying to make it different is, in my mind, the wrong way to go about um, enjoying Italian cooking. Yeah, and it's it's so clever as well because that isn't what so many people are doing and yet mm. it's what people want. Mm. It's essentially going to a friend you know is a really amazing cook and going yeah. to a lovely dinner party. Like yeah. There is nothing better than that. I, w- I will always choose to eat at someone's house and enjoy their home cooking mm. than at a restaurant. Yeah which might sound a bit perverse for a restaurateur, <laughs> but I'm sorry, there it is. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. What was mm. the first dish you learned to cook? So I was a student in the 80s in Sunderland, and I was studying English. It was quite a, it was quite a funky, interesting course, actually. It wasn't just Shakespeare and Chaucer. So, you know, it, it was a good course in um, an odd part of the country. I lived in Sunderland for four years after my degree. I, but while I was there, I lived in digs for the first year, just on the outskirts, which were terrible. <laughs> Cold and damp and miserable. And I pretty much lived off kebabs for a year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then in my second and third years, I got a room in a massive house that used to be a school. And my landlady, uh, Kate Parkin, who was a real a sort of eccentric but incredibly sweet person. Had loads of dogs, loads of cats. And for my birthday present in December, she bought me Mrs. Beaton's. Oh, wow. So um, I had this massive classic Victorian cookbook. Um, and I thought, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a go at some of this. And I pretty much over the next year, year and a half, worked through the entire book. Wow. And I made every recipe just to see whether I could and just to see what it turned out like. Um, There were lots of one-pot dishes. But I think the first dish that I remember cooking from Mrs. Beaton's was was a classic. uh, It was either shepherd's pie or cottage pie. I can't remember which. But either beef or lamb, vegetables chopped up, which I bought very cheaply after 4 o'clock at Jackie White's Market because vegetables were always cheaper at the end of the day (laughs) than they were at the beginning. So, yeah, it was was either cottage or shepherd's pie. Mm. That was the first dish I'm pretty sure that that I made and thought, actually... I think I can cook. Yeah. When she gave you that book, was it because she knew that you were you had an interest in I cooking? No, I, I don't think a... so. No, I, I didn't really have an interest in cooking at that time. Um, and she sparked I, it was just, something. Yeah, she just, she just sort of thought, oh, this might be useful for you. Yeah. So your career began as a teacher, mm. I think first teaching unemployed minors about the arts, and you then got a job as a bartender in mm. London before moving to the restaurant floor, a job that you believed was just a stopgap, yeah. but ultimately it was the beginning of everything. Mm. And I wondered if you'd never found restaurants, do you think you would have continued on as a teacher? I know you went back to teaching after you had your son, but yeah, do you think, there was, would you have been happy? There, there was a crossover. So I, I was, even while I was teaching, I went back to university and, and got a, a postgraduate qualification that enabled me to teach. I went for a practice interview at a girls' school in Stanmore in North London, just because my lecturer said it would be useful just to, you know, to, to see how interviews work. And to everyone's surprise, uh, they gave me the job. <laughs> so I was I very quickly, I, I found myself as head of department. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so head of drama at um, at Bentleywood High School for Girls, um, but the whole time I was I was head of drama at, at the school. I was working at Joe Allen at weekends just to earn that little bit of extra money in order to you know help with bills and so on. And after about three and a half years, whilst <clears throat> working full time as as head of department and working part time as a waiter and maitre d and sometimes administrator i'd sometimes go in on a sunday and do some paperwork i realized that i was enjoying my part-time job more than my full-time job Mm. and then the owner of the restaurant came to me and said we have a position for a full-time manager and the salary for the full-time manager was so much better than the salary i was getting as head of department at the school it was a sort of it was sort of bittersweet um you know it it really upset me to leave teaching but Mm. you know it's quite important and practical at the time that I looked after my family in the best way that I could. So I switched and became a full-time restaurant worker. And you climbed the ranks, as I said Mm. in the introduction, as barman to maitre d', general manager, and then operations manager. I'm sure at every stage you learn 
really valuable things mm. and skills. But which of those stages do you think ultimately was the most important for what you're doing or what you went on to do? I would say that everything I've done um, since I opened my first restaurant in 2009, which was Polpo mm. on Beak Street in Soho, um, everything I learned was learned in the 10 years I was at Joe Allen as waiter, bartender, okay. manager, maitre d', etc. So from 1989 to 1999, it was the best training ground, really, that I could have hoped for. Um, what do you think would have happened if you'd opened the restaurant without having had that experience? I couldn't have done it. You don't think no, so? Would no. you ever have done it? No, I don't think I would. I mean, it, it took me, don't forget, I mean, so I left Joe Allen in 99, spent a year with um, Terence Conran's company at the Blueprint Cafe with Jeremy Lee, uh, then um, moved to work with Chris Bodker and Marion Scrutton at Circus, the Avenue West Street for about three or four years. And then I was headhunted um, by uh, Rainer Becker, who owns Zuma. Mm. Um, and became general manager of Zuma for three and a half to four years. Um, then took about three months off uh, just after my first daughter was born, uh, at the beginning of 2006, and then got a phone call from um, a friend, um, Mark Hicks. Yeah. And Mark at the time was chef director of Caprice Holdings, and it had just been sold by Luke Johnson to Richard Caring. And... Caring had come to a, an early board meeting and looked around at the board of directors, which consisted of Mark Hicks, a chef, Des McDonald, an ex-chef, an ex Andy Cress, an ex-chef. Um, and he sort of threw his hands in the air and he said, where's the front of house guy here? And they all looked at each other and said, mm -hmm, we don't have one. And said, well, hello. So that was when... Mark Hicks gave me a call and said, my new boss is looking for a front of house ops director. Um, so met up with the team, got that job. And it was about, I guess, about three years later. So this would have been uh, September 25th, yeah. 2008, which is when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the financial crisis began. And so my job overnight became less about being creative and um, business development and became about cost cutting and spreadsheets and yeah. calculators. And so it was then I thought this isn't for me. Um, and a friend of mine, a long-standing friend who I met back in the days of Sunderland said, well, what about that restaurant idea you've had for a couple of years? Isn't it time to do that? Um, and the, the restaurant idea was Polpo. Mm. And so we sort of got together, agreed, you know, strategy and started to look for a site. And that site was the very first pop on Beak Street. So I left my rather executive role with Caprice Holdings and stopped shaving, stopped wearing suits, <laughs> and <laughs> became a bit of a sort of bohemian hippie Soho cliche. And, um, you know, scraped together some money and opened Polpo in uh, September 2009. I was thinking when I was reading the story, Obviously, that time was very stressful yeah. and, you know, awful for a lot of people. But in a way, was it kind of a blessing in disguise that yeah. you, your hand got forced? Like, yeah. would you ever have left no. a job like that if it had carried on being what you were enjoying? Yeah, my hand was forced. And I also thought that the whole um, restaurant market was in limbo, I mm. guess, for a while because Nobody really knew whether people were going to eat out, whether they could afford you know, the same sort of uh, bills that they were used to paying or whether expense accounts would stretch uh, to cover those bills. And I, I sort of thought, well, you know, a, a really inexpensive, scruffy, casual and sort of slightly New York-y, even though Polpa was very Venetian, it, it also had a you know, huge amount of, um, of influence from my times spent in New York. Mm. I sort of thought, well, yeah, that, that might work. People might chime with it. They might, you know, think, okay, we can do this because we'll get change out of £25 a head yeah. and still have a great time and still enjoy ourselves. And so, it, yeah, it was a definite gamble, but it, it paid off, thank yeah. goodness. We're going to pause there and okay. talk about the best dish you've ever eaten. I love simplicity. And I get slightly nervous sometimes about saying that what chefs do is not what I 
enjoy. Mm. And sometimes it isn't. You know, I sometimes think that things need to be, you know, left uh, as close as they possibly can be to their original state. There's a great quote which I've put in, I think, the very first recipe of the Bruto cookbook. Uh, there's a great quote from a brilliant chef called Sean Hill who runs the walnut tree in mm. Abergavenny. And he was asked in an interview, what's the secret to great cooking? And he thought for a while and his response was, buy the best ingredients and don't f*** it up. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I would, so I would say the best dish I've ever eaten, I, I, I eat it every single time I go back to this restaurant. It's a restaurant called Alitestieri in Venice. Mm. And it's just a plateful of very simply, gently sautéed razor clams with a little bit of garlic, very good olive oil and um, finely chopped parsley, and then stop. Yeah. So effectively, if you forget the you know store cupboard ingredients like garlic and olive oil and parsley, it's one ingredient, which is the beautiful razor clams from the lagoon, alive before they go into the pan and on your table within two and a half minutes. Mm. Um, I'd say, yeah, that would be the dish I'd go you know, back for again. And in fact, it is the dish I go back for again and again. Yeah. yeah. I think I was reading that it was A.A. A. Gill who wrote one of the first reviews about pulpo, and he mm. said it's not so much cooking as beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a huge compliment. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, you, you buy great ingredients and you do as little to them as you possibly can. Mm. Absolutely, there is an inverse relationship between the quality of ingredients and the amount you need to yeah. do to them. Yeah, like a bad quality tomato. There's Forget so it, work. throw it in the bin. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Give it to your cat. <laughs> so opening Polpo in 2008 after the financial crash, mm. it was a high-risk time. And I read a quote that said, disaster seems to get Russell Norman's juices flowing. <laughs> Do you think that's true? I would say no. <laughs> disaster, no, it's not disaster, <laughs> but I, I like a challenge. Okay. Let's put it that way. And so, you know, the financial crash in, in September 2008 led to me looking for a site and finding it and opening Pulpo in 2009. Mm. Uh, there were other um, challenges on the way, which, you know, I, I wouldn't say I relished, but I, I certainly didn't shy away from them. Mm. And then, you know, the, the whole collapse of Pulpo in, I guess, I think the, I think the process of its demise uh, began in 2019 mm. when... You know, one of our surefire investors pulled out the last minute after we committed to uh, two or three sites. Um, and then we were financially committed to those sites without the investor, despite the promises. We made the mistake of moving before we'd had mm. the signature on the contract. And that that began the process of us you know, becoming unstuck. I differed in a few respects with my business partner about the direction that the company should take and that the restaurant should go. And then COVID happened mm. and things got even tougher. And I walked away in June 2020. But like a phoenix. And, the, and then, rose. yeah. And then, well, no, I, I, I spent, you know, from June 2020 to around about December 2020, um, stuck in rural Kent, not being able to even get into my car and drive anywhere. Mm. You know, we were standing on the streets clapping the NHS and that was as far as we were allowed to go out of our houses. Yeah. But the whole time I was there twiddling my thumbs, you know, I was thinking about books to write and I was thinking about other projects that I could do. And anybody that would listen to me would hear the same thing from my lips, which was if there's one thing I'm absolutely convinced <laughs> and certain about, it's that I will never, ever open another restaurant as long as I live. <laughs> However, when restrictions started to lift towards the end of 2020, like a drug addict, I was on the phone to my <laughs> property agent saying, um, anything coming up? <laughs> because I'd had this idea. Mm. Um, I'd been in Florence in 2018, 2019, and I'd even managed to get into Florence in February 2020. Oh, wow. Just before Italy locked down. Oh, wow. And I was that with my family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we landed at Florence Airport and there were, you know, there were security guards in hazmats, mm. uh, you know, uh, aiming laser thermometers at our foreheads to check our temperature. It was all quite scary. Mm. But I thought, well, you know, this is all going to blow over. Nobody realized what a global yeah. phenomenon uh, and um, disaster it was going to be. So that was the time, the last time I was in Florence before I started to think, okay, I have an idea. 
And so during those months, the summer and autumn of 2020, um, that's when I started to write menus and collect and collate my notes and photographs and stuff that I'd, you know, put together over the previous three or four mm. years for this idea that I had. So when I told everyone I would never open another restaurant, I was obviously thinking, what else can I do? Yeah. And when I got on the phone to Rob Meadows at um, Davis Coffer Lions, um, one of the biggest restaurant property agents in in uh, the UK, and said, is uh, anything coming up? He said, do you want to look at the old Hicks site? <gasps> so my old friend Mark Hicks, who whose business had uh, failed before COVID, actually, his business partners uh, disagreed with the direction that the restaurants were taking. It's all these things that you don't really think about when you're starting a business. Like you don't Mm. imagine, you think if Mm. you do a good job and you run a successful restaurant, Mm. everything's going to work out. And you never anticipate that you'd have investors who'd behave like that Mm. or business partners with a different opinion. It's all these things that you just can't anticipate. Well, yeah, these days I think I'd I'd be a little bit more careful. Yeah, the first time around though. It's not once bitten, twice shy. It's Mm. sort of, (laughs) in my experience, it's like... Five times bitten, <laughs> twice shy. <laughs> so anyway, um, Rob from Davis Coffer Lions showed me the site. Um, I said, oh, yeah, I like it. Why, why is it still on the market? He said, I've shown it to quite a few people and it's down a back alley. It's off the main drag. It might be difficult for passers-by to see it. I said, might there be a deal here? And Rob was great. And he got back to me within a couple of days and said, yeah, the landlord's very interested to hear your proposal. It was a big risk, but I, I just thought, you know, most of the places in Florence, for example, that I like are not on main roads mm. or not in, you know, the, the fashionable districts yeah. in the centre, in the historical centre. There's always center. those ones. You know, they're on the outskirts of Oltrano or in San Frediano. Um, and I thought, yeah, this is quite similar in, in that respect. But I remember, I think my second visit there, I thought the one thing that I need because it is down a dead-end back alley, which backs onto the back of fabric. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I'm so bad at getting my bearings. <laughs> so I think these are the reasons that so many people turned it down. That's but a I selling sta- point. I remember, I remember standing on Cowcross Street looking down Greenhill Rents at this site, which is almost hidden. And I thought the one thing it needs is a great sign. And so in the back of my mind, I had this image of a wonderful opaline glass lantern that hangs outside a backstreet hotel, well, pensione, in fact, not even a hotel, hotel and trattoria in Venice called Locanda Montin. And they have this wonderful opaline sort of milky glass lantern with red lettering saying Locanda Montin. I thought, yeah, if I could have something like that hanging Mm. outside uh, the restaurant, so that you could see it from the main street. And I've sort of imagined in my mind people walking and then looking left or looking right down the alley and seeing this lantern and thinking, hey, wait a second, what's this? <laughs> like a, you know, those anglerfish that have those, yes. that Drawing have those, them in. That have those lights <laughs> hanging in front of their heads and the fish come to see what the light is and the anglerfish then just eats them. <laughs> exactly like that, Russell. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so I, I took a chance and I said, let's go for it. And after a few months of you know, wrangling over the lease, signed the lease, without knowing whether we'd be able to open because oh, we were still in a situation where you could only eat outside. Mm. So it was, a, it was a terrifying time. I think you do enjoy disaster, <laughs> going back to that earlier I pref- quote. I prefer, <laughs> I prefer not to have had any of that. I'm grateful that, you know, that it's behind us now. Mm. Let's pause there and mm. talk about the fourth desert island dish. That's a very important question. Mm. What is your favourite sandwich? It's quite an easy question actually my favorite sandwich is bacon with red sauce in thick white bread and lots of butter from bar bruno in uh soho it's i think it's the last remaining greasy spoon in soho just on a corner on berwick street and i've always loved going there when i worked in soho and had an office on greek street and then an office on golden square i'd always make a little journey there and sit down with all the guys in high vis yeah and the hard hat helmets big mug of tea i mean strong tea yeah. it's like it's not it's not tea colored it's, it's like it's it's almost mahogany brown 
So big mug of very strong tea and white bread bacon sandwich, always with red sauce. You never call it ketchup. Oh. It's always brown sauce or red sauce. It's never ketchup or um, oh, yeah. HP. Oh, yeah, HP. I don't know why. You never use the brand. You never say ketchup. Oh, sorry, you never say, yeah, it's never ketchup. Yeah. It's always red sauce or brown sauce. Yeah. It's not cool to say the brand. You just describe just the colour. So bacon, <laughs> bacon, red sauce, white bread, barbaro. How have we got to a place where there's only one remaining great greasy spoon? Isn't yeah. that so sad? It is, yeah. But I'm, I'm very your glad next, that it's still there. The next one, mm. next restaurant. Next, well, funny enough. <laughs> yes? <laughs> no. It, it's been something that I've talked about with a, a friend of mine for quite some time, but it never works out. Um, Russell, that's uh, always been my dream. Let's do it together. It never works out when I get in front of my computer and I do oh. the spreadsheets. One of the things that I said when I made that BBC show a couple of years ago was that, you know, if the numbers don't work, forget about it. Because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, you have to pay your uh, staff. You have a responsibility to them. And if you haven't done your sums and you open a business that, um, that isn't uh, viable financially, then... You haven't just screwed yourself; you've screwed them as well. So, yeah. I'm I'm an absolute believer in you know making sure that the numbers work before getting involved in anything like looking at sites or yeah. making offers on leases. And the uh, the greasy spoon idea didn't work on paper. Wow. Sorry. I'm I'm here, Russell. If you ever change <laughs> your mind. So, Polpo had been the restaurant that you'd always dreamt of opening for such mm. a long time, and it was a trailblazer in mm. the way it had the small plates and the stripped back decor, the loud music. Was that a really conscious thing and a, a desire to be different and to be doing something that other people weren't, or is that is that something that you consciously think about? Okay, so uh, there's an easy answer to this actually. So I talked about going to New York. Um, a few moments ago, um, which I did just for fun initially, but then it became research um, after I opened my restaurant, Spintino. But with Polpo, um, I knew that it needed to be a mix of um, Venetian food and the ethos of the baccaro and the ethos of chiquetti, mm. the small dishes that you get in, in the baccari of Venice. But I wanted it to, you know, to have a, a very New York sort of feel to it. And so with Polpo, I thought, what's the sort of place that I would enjoy going to? And so I, I built a restaurant and created an idea in terms of design, in terms of lighting, in terms of music, in terms of the small plates. I created something that I thought I would enjoy. And it's always been my belief that you just try to do something that would appeal to you mm. and hope that it would appeal to enough other people as well yeah. that are similarly minded. And so that was it. I, I built the restaurant for me and hope that other people would be like me and like it too. Yeah, well, I guess that's a better way to start than doing something that even you, you should <laughs> don't never, really love. I absolutely believe what I'm about to say is is one of my um, key strategies, mm. and that is that you should never try to second-guess what people want. I've never thought about stuff that, you know, that, that doesn't have a place in my heart as potential ideas um, and philosophies for restaurants. I've always gone back to what I like and what I want um, and put that and those into my business um, and into my business ideas and just hoped and prayed that other people <laughs> would think the same. I like hoping and praying as a mm. good business strategy, but no, I think that is that is very good advice. Yes, yeah. stick to what you know, I think, yeah. is, is, the, is the bottom line there. Yeah. Now, Russell, I'm mm. nervous about this yes. next bit, but I want to preface this by saying yes. I thought Polpo was amazing. Mm -hmm. I love your cookbooks. I love your writing. Mm. Dying to go to Bruto. Mm -hmm. Can't wait to mm -hmm. read the new book. And yet, I have a bone to pick mm -hmm. with you because you are the man who single-handedly started the trend for not being able to book a table at a restaurant. Talk to me about that. Not true. <laughs> um, there is a restaurant called Barafina yes. who, 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 uh, yeah, who, who did it at least a year before Polpo. Okay. But just to just to set the record straight, okay. I, wa I wasn't the first, but people. Okay. People accepted Barafina because it was just a bar. There were no tables. And it was also modelled on a brilliant uh, restaurant bar, sort of tapas bar in Barcelona called Calpep, mm. uh, who don't take reservations. So it, it was sort of accepted and they, they, got, they got away with it and went under the radar. When I opened Polpo, I took bookings. And what I noticed was that the people that I built the restaurant for, who were the people that lived and worked and played in Soho, weren't able to mm. get tables because they were all being booked 
three, four, five, six weeks in advance by people who had read the reviews and were traveling distances coming from, you know, the home counties or from out of town or from zone four. And um, I hope I don't get into trouble here, but generally speaking, <laughs> they would come along and they would be disappointed because oh. they had waited several weeks to come, having booked several weeks in advance. They were expecting something that wasn't noisy and wasn't dark and where the tables weren't pushed so closely together and, you know, where the waiters weren't scruffy and sort of looked as if they'd just gone out on a bed and had tattoos. <laughs> um, and yet the door was opening with walk-ins with people that, like I say, lived, worked or played in Soho and I couldn't accommodate them. I thought the people that I built this restaurant for aren't able to come in. And the people that are coming in who've booked several weeks in advance are disappointed. I thought, how am I going to switch this? How am I going to fix this? And I just thought, well, the only way to do it would be to do what they do in those neighborhood restaurants in downtown Manhattan and Brooklyn, and that is not take reservations. So nobody travels great distances because it's a local restaurant, it's a neighborhood joint, and I thought that my neighborhood is Soho, so I, I stopped taking bookings. Um, and you're absolutely right, it was like I lit a sort of the, the blue touch paper and a firework went off. Um, and yeah, everybody blames me. Um, I think, I think, I think, I, I know why you've said that. Um, Polpo was, it was a big news story when we stopped taking bookings and um, when many other restaurants that opened, uh, that opened after Pulper did the same, mm. everybody pointed back to me and said, oh, he's, he's to blame. <laughs> but can I also say, <laughs> at Bruto, I've always taken bookings. I know, I was and very it's, happy it's, to see it's, that. It's, it's Although fully, it's very it's, hard to get it's, a table. That's the thing, I, I damned if I do and damned if I don't. So I take, no. I take bookings at Bruto and I still get it in the neck because people say they can never get a booking. I did consider. No, no, no. Russell, no I did consider no. removing bookings from Bruto and making it. No, everyone's happy to wait okay. until they can book. Okay. They can book a table. Don't change it, Russell. No, I'm not going to. Okay, let's move on to the fifth desert island mm. dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Oysters. Mm. Like how often are we talking? Two or three times a week. Really? Or whenever I can. Yeah. At home or always? No, out no, no. So, um, so I live in a, a village called Pluckley in Kent, which is in the Guinness Book of Records as the most haunted village in the UK, incidentally. Oh, I read that. Mm -hmm. But your house isn't haunted. Unfortunately not. It's but really disappointing. You said the pictures move on their own. They do. It's because it's a, it's a Tudor farmhouse built in 1540 that it doesn't have foundations. Okay. It's just, it's just the, the house <laughs> moves rather than the pictures. Okay. <laughs> but it takes me about, so to get into Farringdon, to get to Bruto from Pluckley, uh, it's not too bad. It's about an hour and a half. But the journey to London Bridge is is very swift. It's one hour, one minute. Mm. And if I'm early, I'll get out on London Bridge and go to Borough Market. Ooh. And there's an oyster stall there. That's so good. for breakfast at around 10.30 in the morning. Oh, I'll, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, I'll stand there and have a dozen all on my own. And how do you have them at 10.30 in the morning? Uh, sometimes with shallot vinaigrette. Sometimes just with a squeeze of lemon, sometimes just as they are, mm. straight down. Uh, occasionally with Tabasco, but um, I've weaned myself off that. I always used to sort of think that you needed Tabasco with oysters, but I've come around to liking them as Without. you know as as natural as they can possibly be. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry it's such a short and boring no, answer, it's, but we've never had that as an it's answer. The, it's I like the dish. It. It's the dish I eat the most for sure. I love that. And I've never, you know, some people say, "Oh, I've had a bad oyster." I've, I've, you know, I must have eaten. Tens of thousands of oysters in my life. And I know that's very lucky. Never had a bad one. I feel like I haven't eaten that many, and I had a bad one. Oh, did you? <laughs> it was so bad. You, well, they say if you have a bad one, it, you can never have them again. It remembers you. Or something like true? that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm scared to try again. Well, I just hope I never have a bad one. No, I think mm. you've made it this far. I think I'm, I think I might be uh, yeah oyster uh, proficient by yeah. now. Mm. So I found a quote where you said that for you, restaurants are about so much more than just the food. You want people to feel transported, uplifted, to feel better about the world and themselves when they leave than they did when they arrived. Mm -hmm. And without getting too deep, but earlier when we were talking about you saying you never wanted to have another restaurant and then what got you coming back to it do you think it was this feeling of it's not the restaurant and it's not the food it's the feeling of both for yourself and for the people who come that mm. it's actually making a, a meaningful impact on yeah think about the word restaurant mm. 
and also the word restaurateur. They both come from the French verb uh, restaurer, which mm -hmm. is to restore. So what you're doing uh, with a restaurant is you're not just feeding people and giving them wine, you're restoring them and you restore people in many different ways. You make them feel better, you make them feel uh, like they're having an experience which is more than just to do with the food and the drink. You know, restaurants are about people and I think most importantly they're about the people that are around you. So you're at a table with friends and you're eating nice food and drinking nice wine but it's about being with those friends and enjoying their company and those friends enjoying your company. Mm. And one of the most effective ways to do that is in a restaurant environment. You, um, you, know, you could sit at home and watch, um, you watch Netflix and have a takeaway, but you won't feel as nourished and as restored as going to a restaurant with friends and enjoying their company, enjoying food and drink. Yeah. And I, th I think that's what I meant when I made that statement. Yeah. It's one of the reasons that you know people will always go to restaurants mm. because they you know, give that give you that feeling. Yeah. Come, I mean, you must agree. You go, well, you, yeah. yeah you go. And it, it reminded me of the whole premise of this podcast is that mm. it, it is about food, but it's about more than food. It's yeah. about people and the stories behind it, it and everything that comes with that. So, mm. no. I didn't think it was pretentious. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about the sixth desert mm. island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? My go-to dish is pretty much always risotto. Mm. So in the really? spring, I'll 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 make um, probably risia busy, which is a Venetian pea and yeah. mint uh, risotto, quite loose and soupy, which I like. Or maybe some asparagus with saffron. In the winter, I'd probably make a radicchio and amarone uh, risotto. The thing about risotto is it's you have to stay with it. Mm. Yeah, you can't just sort of put it on and then walk away and have a drink and forget about it. You got to you got to stay with it for a good 40 45 minutes. Yeah. But it's worth it because okay. you know the results are, are, are you know just wonderful. Yeah. It's comforting. Um, and I love the process as well. You're so starting you... with the onions and then toasting the rice, the carnaroli rice, yeah. adding the dry vermouth just at the right temperature so you get this wonderful puff of steam then sort of lading the stocking little by little and then judging when to put the vegetables in, which vegetables you're using and so on, depending on their hardiness or the length of time they take to cook. And then my favourite part, which is getting to the end and adding an obscene yeah. amount of butter. <laughs> I usually ask my guests, if they're in the kitchen at the time, to look away yeah. at that point. I said, don't, please don't look at what I'm about to do. Because I'd be like, it, Russell, what makes this so delicious? Well, there we go. <laughs> and I cut them into little cubes. And then what you do is the, the mantica is, you know, is turning up the heat and then stirring um, quite um, enthusiastically so that you get this lovely creamy consistency to the risotto. Mm. And then an obscene amount of parmesan, yeah. usually. <laughs> it's the answer to everything, butter and butter, cheese. Butter and cheese. <laughs> the secret is yeah. out. Do you ever make puddings? If I do, I will I will bake a day in advance or the morning before, or I'll serve something simple like stewed fruit or even simpler, like, you know, sometimes I'll just throw some grapes into the freezer. Oh, I thought you'd like no. throw them onto the table. Throw some grapes into the freezer, oh, yeah. um, have some uh, really good grappa, in the freezer and some really good dark chocolate in the mm. fridge. And then I'll just serve everybody a plate with a few chunks of chocolate, uh, a glass of gloopy uh, grappa, and the frozen grapes, which turn into sorbet mm. once you put them in the freezer. Or I'll make um, cantuccini biscuits to dip into Vinsanto. Or in advance, I'll make a, you know, a great sort of pear and walnut or pear and almond tart, mm. just so that I can serve it cold with a dollop of um, mascarpone cream. Yeah, God, sounds yeah. amazing. Okay, on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. Mm. So I'd mm. love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Mm, I've got about 450 okay. cookbooks. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, so this is the extended episode, which is going to last four and a half hours. No, so I've got about 450 cookbooks. So I think it's not my most cherished, but the, but the one I would like to mention, I suppose, is not just a cookbook. You know, it's a it's a book of stories and it's a, you know, it's a book of ideas uh, and it's called Bean Eaters and Bread Soup. Mm. And it's by Laurie... Uh, oh, no. no, Laurie Damari. Okay. Um, photography by Jason Lowe. Mm. 
And along with the recipes, it's, it's obviously um, a Tuscan uh, cookbook, bean eaters and bread soup. You know, Tuscans are known as bean eaters in, in all 19 other regions of Italy. <laughs> so Laurie uh, runs Towpath Cafe. Oh, yeah. But she wrote this book yeah. years and years ago. And her ex-husband, Jason, took the photographs, and they're, they're lovely. But it's a really simple book. I love the detail that she goes into about the region and about, you know, those producers and growers uh, that contribute so much to the region. There's a chapter on a small community of 80 residents in rural Tuscany where they have an artichoke commune and it's just it's one of those books which is really evocative and so patiently and, and well researched but with great recipes mm. as well okay i need to check uh, that yeah. out yeah I, I don't know whether it's still in print but i th i think you could probably get a secondhand copy on those secondhand yeah. uh, websites that we um, all, all love but yeah it's called um it's called bean eaters and bread soup okay thank you we're on to the final seventh okay. desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Okay. I don't know whether this will surprise you, but my desert island meal before going to the desert island would be um, would be exclusively Japanese. Mm, that does surprise me. So I'd have yeah, some excellent uh, miso soup. Um, I would have um, a wakame salad, uh, dressed very simply. Um and a mat, when I say a, a wakame salad, I mean a, a mound of wakame. I'm a huge seaweed fan. I would have one of my favorite dishes, which is um, um, a Japanese dish of um, steamed spinach, drained, served cold with uh, tahini and sesame seeds. It's so called good. goma. Um, I would have a massive plate of saba sashimi. So this is the um, mackerel sashimi which is just slightly vinegared so it's not completely raw it's just cooked a little in vinegar um and then served with mounds and mounds of wasabi and did i mention that i worked as general manager at a japanese restaurant in knightsbridge called zuma oh, yes i did yes, I, can't, yeah. I can't remember yeah. what i did yeah i would take a few dishes from yeah. their uh, from their menu as well like yeah. their wonderful um, rabata dishes, you know, grilled prawns and you know, very simply grilled chilies or asparagus. Yeah. So a few hot dishes as well from the rabata grill at Zuma. Yeah. Um, and that's it, really. I'm not a fan of sake. No. So I would probably have it with something really simple, like um, like a really good champagne. Yeah. Jackson or uh, Henriot. Yeah, I've got a few favourites. But yeah, it would, it would just be a... a mostly raw with a few cooked dishes from the Zuma's Rabata Grill um, Japanese feast. That sounds incredible. So with that, we're going to send you off to the island. Russell Norman, thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes. Thank you. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It really does make such a difference because it basically tells the charts that uh, this is a good podcast to listen to and means that other people discover it and it means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And of course, you can sign up for the new newsletter, Dinner Tonight, by going to desertislanddishes.co and just pop your email in the form there and you'll find your way to dinner tonight. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>